Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. You will, let me open a word of grace if we can. So, Father, we are um, privileged to be in your home amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we praise you for the grace that you have given to us, enabling us to come together in fellowship and in unity. And Lord, we ask now that you would teach us, that you would be our Lord, that you would be our God, and that you would be our Savior. And we pray that our hearts and our minds be open, and that you give us discernment, wisdom, and understanding. Father, that our own lives might be strengthened, as well as our testimony, our testimony to others, that we would be able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around us with gentleness, with, with respect, with love, with mercy and compassion. Just as you saved us, may we also be means of, of, of evangelism, be means of a light to those around us. We praise you and we thank you for all that you've given to us now. And we ask now your mercy upon our lives. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. My name is Rob Dalrymple, and it's a privilege uh, to be here this morning with you all. And just to give you an idea, we're going to spend four weeks looking at, uh, basically, you'll see the idea in in your outline, addressing what is a worldview, what does it mean to have a Christian worldview, why is it important anyways, and why should I believe in the Christian worldview and not another worldview? Uh, That's the focus of this particular seminar, and this seminar is kind of our staple seminar here in the Worldview Project. So this is the one seminar that we're going to repeat every couple, two to three years or so, because it really forms the the platform for the rest of our other seminars as well. Looking intently at the Christian worldview in particular, and why we should believe in it, and why we think it's reasonable and rational as well. We have other seminars that we've done on politics, we've done seminars on science and faith, We've done seminars on Islam and looking at other worldviews. We've done them on the culture and, and uh, the Christian life, um, etc. Right now we have on the plans a seminar in the fall on, on Hollywood, faith and film. And uh, uh, hopefully we'll be able to put that together. I have some executives down in Southern California that we're working on. Um, and hopefully that'll come together by next October um, as well. But the question is, you know, why should I believe this? You know, one of the most tragic statistics we have in Christendom is the fact that 80 or more percent of our youth that grow up in the church leave the church by the time they go to college. Right? You know, and we love to sit here and think, okay, well, my youth aren't this, you know, my kids are going to be the exception to that rule. The youth in our church, they're not going to be succumbed to that statistic. You know, I had a wonderful church that I grew up in for a long time, and we had a dynamic youth group. We would have a Sunday night service. We'd have 50 or more youth in our choir on Sunday night. All right? and, and I was in that choir. I sang really quietly and softly and tried not to let anybody know. Every once in a while we'd have practice and I'm like, who was that? I'm like, oh, dang it, that's too loud. You know? and, uh, but uh, it was a wonderful thing to be a part of this group. We had a, a wonderful after Sunday night services. We'd get together. We'd go out to pizza, go over to someone's home. It was just a dynamic fellowship. And a number of years ago, one of my friends and I, who had grown up in that youth group with us, uh, actually, uh, this particular uh, young lady now, was t- talking to my wife one day. 
And she asks the question, she says, has Rob ever commented to you about how so few of those that were in our youth group are still attending church? You know, and it's, it's, it's sad, it's tragic. We are not to look at ourselves as an exception to the statistic. But the question is, is why? Why do our youth, and those of you that are youth in here, why should we, why do they fall away? And those of you that are youth, what is it? Why do you believe? Why do you go to church? Why are you attending? What is it that you believe? Is this a faith that's your parents' faith? Or is it your own? Is it a faith that it's, it's your friends? We're there for the social. We're there because we, we get, it's a great place to be. And once you get off into college, those questions are going to hit you square in the face. No longer is mom and dad sitting there going, hey, come to church with us, son or daughter. All, right? All of a sudden now, those questions are going to hit you, and you're going to have to address them as well. And I think it's a question that we have to, we have to look at. The book of Hebrews... Chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And what I love about this verse is this. It is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Our faith is not grounded in emotion. Our faith is grounded in fact, in reality. There's a God who exists who has made himself known. And as we look at the evidence for the, for, for the existence of God and the trustworthiness of Christianity, we begin to realize, wow, there's reasons to believe this. It makes sense. This is credible. And I realize that our culture doesn't tell us that, does it? Our society doesn't tell us that. Uh, and, and that we go around as well. So the question then is, is what is your faith grounded in? In. All right. More than that, let's stop by asking ourselves, what does it mean to have a worldview? Right. And let me simply pose it this way. A worldview, right, Chuck Colson said it this way, the world, a worldview is a sum total of our beliefs about the world. It's a sum total of our beliefs about the world. A worldview is a set of assumptions. Maybe another way of putting it. It's a set of things that we hold to. All right? Our, our basic core beliefs all right, that affect everything we do and believe. Bless you. It affects everything we do or believe. It's a set of assumptions that I hold to or you hold to or we hold to that affects everything we do or believe. We filter it through our worldview. Is that right or is that wrong? Do I believe this or do I believe that? I do this or should I do that? It all gets filtered through whatever our worldview is. The problem for the church, I think so tragically, is that we as Christians don't understand the fact that a Christian worldview really is all-encompassing. It affects everything. When we come to know Christ as Lord, the essence of coming to Christianity is that we accept Jesus Christ as Lord. Right? Well, for many of us, what that means is we look at that as affecting only us spiritually. Coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord means that I've accepted Him as my Savior. And in my spiritual life, I devote myself to Jesus. But in my secular life, in my work, in my ethics, in my whatever else it might be, we don't really understand the significance of it. Does that make sense? We don't let God affect all of those convictions. 
But Jesus Christ as Lord means He's Lord of everything. I've started, when I go to work, I, well, I do everything I do for the glory of God. When I go to church, it's for the glory of God. When I'm at home, you see, there's a Christian worldview of parenting. There's a Christian worldview of work. There's a Christian worldview of morality and of ethics. There's a Christian worldview of everything that we do and believe. And so I think it's important that we understand the significance of this as opposed to being uh, so, so simple-minded uh, in many ways. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37 says, <clears throat> Who is there then? Who is there who speaks? And it comes to pass. Unless the Lord has commanded it, is it not for the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill come forth? God is in sovereign control of everything. He didn't just come to be my Savior to be your Savior. God is the sovereign Lord over everything. And from Him everything proceeds. He sends the rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. He causes good. He sends forth the lightning. He causes the grass to grow. He feeds the cattle. God is in sovereign, a sovereign God. And I think it's important that we begin to understand that because then we begin to realize that in every aspect of our lives, there's a God who cares and there's a God who's there and he says, hey, this is how I want you to live here. This is how I want you to live there. And God is in sovereign control of all things as well. All right, there's a wonderful story in 2 Kings. In this particular story, the king of Damascus was fighting with the Israelites. And the king of Damascus got his counsel together in 2 Kings chapter 6. He gets his counsel together and he begins, okay, this is what our plan is. We're going to go here and do this. Well, God silly as he is, happens to overhear the conversation. And he goes and tells Elijah, Elijah, this is what the Damascans are going to be doing. So Elijah goes and tells the king of Israel. And as the king of Damascus goes out to wage wars, sure enough, the Israelites were expecting him. So the king of Damascus comes back to his commanders and says, okay, one of you is a spy. Everything we discussed in here, the Israelites somehow know. And some of the, of, the, uh, of the Arameans, they were Arameans, went to the king of Damascus and said, no, no, here's what's happening. There's a prophet in Israel named Elijah, and he knows even what you do in your bedroom. So the king of Damascus says, well, here's our plan. Let's go surround that city. Where is that man? So they go to, the, to where Elijah was, and all of a sudden, Elijah's servant walks out. And his servant walks out and goes, oh no, and he saw the Damascus, ar the, the Aramean army surrounding the whole city. And he goes in and he tells Elijah, Elijah, you won't believe it. The, the city is full, it's surrounded by the armies of the Arameans. And Elijah turns and he prays. And he says, oh God, when the attendant of the man of God, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 15, when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, Behold, an army with horses and chariots was encircling the city. And the servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he said, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elijah. You see, there's a reality of God's existence that we don't often see. And if we were to step back 
and say, God, how is it that you see the world? What's really going on? And allow God to be the sovereign Lord of everything that we do. Of everything that we do. God is sovereign. And Elijah had the ability to have God's insight into these situations uh, as well. All right, so a worldview then is that as something that affects everything we do and believe. All right, it's a sum total of all of our beliefs, and it has a direct influence upon everything we do or believe. All right, <clears throat> well, there are a number of worldviews. All right, I don't know if you can see this well enough. Let me see if I can do this here. Let's see if this works. It does. Very good. Yeah, I listed on this chart here atheism, monotheism, pantheism, and polytheism. There are about six worldviews. We won't go into the time to this, th th during this seminar to discuss what all these worldviews are. But what we're going to notice is, is that each worldview then has, an, has, has a set of influences. So atheism is a worldview. Let me ask you the question without looking at the chart. If you are an atheist, the belief that there's no God, what is it that you cannot con conclude about creation, about where the universe came from? Your atheistic worldview will not permit you to believe something about the, about the origin of, of the universe that was created. That there's a supernatural power out there. You see, my atheistic worldview does not allow that as a possibility. My convictions are, that's not possible. So, when it comes to science, they hold to a viewpoint that's called naturalism. Naturalism says there's no supernatural. Right, very simple. Everything can be accounted for by natural processes and natural means. Right? Now, as a result of that, an, athe an atheistic scientist adhering to some form of naturalism has to believe in some form of evolution, whether it's the modern idea of evolution, whether it's a, a morphed idea of it. But they cannot believe in Genesis chapter 1. Because their worldview does not permit it. All right, this is an important thing, especially for those of you that go to college very soon or in college now. You're going to go to college and you're going to hear a lot of very, very smart professors who have really studied things very, very well. And they're going to go out there and go, oh, there's no evidence for the existence of God. And the question is this. Have they honestly evaluated that question? Or... Are they simply working from a set of assumptions? A set of prior assumptions. I do not believe in the existence of God. Therefore, when I look at this evidence over here, that can't be because God did that. There must be another explanation for it. And maybe they'll honestly engage themselves in that evidence, or maybe they'll just say, I don't know, I don't know what the answer is, I'll deal with it later. And honestly, by the way, that is often what happens. By the way, it happens for us in the church also, though. We're guilty of the exact same reasoning. We look at this over here and go, oh, that can't be true because I think it, it's a problem for my belief in the Bible. So whatever that, whatever that guy says, it's wrong. Well, let's evaluate it. I've said it this way before, some of you have heard. I believe that as Christians, we should be the most open-minded of all people. If we really believe that Jesus is the truth, then what we believe is that all truth eventually points us directly to Christ. So therefore, I should be open-minded. Let, let's, let's evaluate this. Let's look at this. But what we have to understand is the fact we often aren't open-minded, nor are many others. 
So it appears like we have these really brilliant professors and they, and they all deny Christianity and surely they've investigated it all. And sorry, they have not often investigated it at all. Their set of prior assumptions, their worldview has influenced how they look at the evidence. So the question we want to ask is, when we look at these different worldviews, which one of these worldviews, atheism, uh, monotheism, polytheism, pantheism, whatever else, etc., right? Which one of these worldviews best accounts for all of the information? Whether it's the information that we know of from philosophy, whether it's the information we know of from science, whether it's the information we know of from history, etc. What we have to be able to do to some extent is to try to step back and say, hey, let's, let's honestly evaluate this. Because you see, as Christians, when we share our faith with others, we want them to do that, don't we? We want them to step back and honestly evaluate the information and the evidence. So we have to be able to be willing to step back ourselves sometimes and say, let's honestly evaluate the evidence. Let's look at that. All right? And this particular seminar, we're going to specifically try to say, let's step back the best we can and honestly evaluate the evidence. Is there evidence that there's a God? And if there's evidence that there's a God, is there evidence of the existence of only one God? Or perhaps there's many gods? And how do we know that if there's only one God, that he's the Christian God? And how do we know that if it's the Christian God, that the Bible is indeed the inspired, reliable, trustworthy Word of God. And then at the end of the seminar, what we'll look at our last week is, well, what about the existence of evil and suffering? That's the primary argument and evidence against the Christian worldview, is there's too much suffering in this world. There's too much evil. And if our God is all-powerful, He could defeat evil. And if He's all-good, He wants to defeat evil. But there's still evil. There's still suffering. So how do we understand this? So our goal then will be to spend four weeks in here looking at those different evidences and asking those types of questions. We, we're not going to be able to look at other worldviews in this particular seminar, as you understand. Um, uh, then we're going to spend two weeks, for those of you that are interested, we're going to be moved down to room 217 here at the end of the hallway upstairs, and we're just going to be able to have some discussion. Based upon what we discussed, based upon what I presented to you, what kind of questions do you have? Let's, and let's, let's, let's dialogue. And, and the dialogue, hey, well, remember I said something, what did I say over here? Well, what about that? And allow us to dialogue and interchange and really help, hopefully, cement some of those things that, that we've done and that we've discussed as well. Now, I'm not opposed, by the way, to a question or a comment or an interjection here or there. Um, uh, please, however, understand that if I say, I'm not going to be able to get to that one, you know, that we have a lot of material to cover. So if I can, if it's a point of clarification, I'd love to help. Uh, if it's something, hey, can we talk about that later? Please be understanding if, if that happens as well. I'm not trying to, to run it. I don't know the answer, so let me just dismiss that one. Hopefully that's not the case. So, All right, let's move forward then. Now, the implications of, of a Christian worldview are very significant. The point in, the point in hand then is, is that a worldview should be able to account for those basic questions. All right? Where did life come from? Where, where did the universe come from? Right? What's the origin of life? All right? What about morality? Where did morality come from? Right? Do we have moral... Is, is there even moral a moral code that we have to adhere to? And what is that moral code? All right? Is there a purpose for life? Every worldview has to account for these questions. Is there a purpose for life? 
right? And if so, what is that purpose? Right? Um, what about evil and suffering? Right? And evil and suffering have always been that one question that all the worldviews have really had to grapple with the most. It's, it's the most difficult nugget um, of them all um, as well. Now, what's interesting, though, is some people try to take a worldview, a perspective, very popular in the modern world, or the postmodern world, or the emerging world, or whatever you want to call it, that basically denies uh, any worldview. The modern, postmodern idea, believe it or not, it's a modern idea of postmodernism, the contemporary postmodern idea says there are no worldviews that can account for all the information. It's a fundamental denial of any worldview as being able to answer all life's questions. What's, we're not going to be able to go into this any more deeply, but let me throw this out for you. All right? It actually itself rejects all worldview, all worldviews, but ultimately replaces it with its own worldview, isn't it? Postmodernism is a worldview. It actually is a worldview that says we can account for everything, namely by denying everybody else's ability to account for everything. It actually, its rejection of everything else puts itself at the top of the pedestal. But ultimately then, they're denying foundations, that there's no foundation upon which you can actually build build an edifice of morality, of ethics, of history, of truth, um, etc. So here's a very interesting uh, clip from a wonderful philosopher named Ravi Zacharias to bring bring the, the problem with this home. Some years ago, I was speaking at Ohio State University, and I was taken to see the Wexner Center of the Arts. And uh, they wanted me to see it, and I wondered why. And when I walked into that building, I said, what is the building all about? There are staircases that go nowhere. There are pillars that serve no purposes. And the man driving me said, this is America's first postmodern building. And the architect said, if life itself has no purpose, why should our buildings have any design or any purpose? So he built it at random without any purpose, as it were. I said, I have one question for you. He said, what's that? I said, did he do that with the foundation as well? The point is then, right, you can't build anything without having a foundation of something. Right. So even postmodernism that denies all foundations has a foundation from which they begin to, to, uh, to filter everything else through um, as well. Chuck Colson said this. He said, The church's singular failure in recent decades has been the failure to see Christianity as a life system or worldview that governs every area of existence. This failure has been crippling in many ways. For one thing, we cannot answer the questions our children are bringing home from school. We are, so we are incapable of preparing them to answer the challenges they face. For ourselves, we cannot explain to our friends and neighbors why we believe, and we often cannot defend our faith. What's more, by failing to see Christian truth in every aspect of life, we miss great depths of beauty and meaning, the thrill of seeing God's splendor in the intricacies of nature, or hearing His voice in the performance of a great symphony, or detecting His character in the harmony of a well-ordered community. G.K. Chesterton said it much more simply. If you will stand for nothing, um, you will fall for anything. We have to have, we all have some worldview by which we filter in everything. And as Christians, we have to understand 
that we've submitted ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we must recognize the fact that He has really spoken into everything. And if we are going to truly and honestly and faithfully follow and obey our Lord and Savior, we must understand that He's done much more than just becoming our Savior. He's become our Lord. He's given us a model for how we should live our very, very lives. So as Christians, our worldview is extremely important because it speaks to everything we do and it speaks to our testimony um, as well. All right, Nancy Piercy said this. She said, We continue losing our, even our children. It's a familiar but tragic story that devout young people raised in Christian homes head off to college and abandon their faith. Why is this pattern so common? Largely because young believers have not been taught how to develop a biblical worldview. Instead, Christianity has been restricted to a specialized area of religious belief and special devotion. Now, there's a problem, of course, as soon as we bring up the issue of worldview and as soon as we challenge people, hey, what do you believe and why do you believe it? And the problem is this. As soon as we ask the question, what do you believe and why do you believe it? The consequences of our beliefs is that it has a direct influence upon how we live our lives. You see, if we ask people, let's be honest. Let's put everything out on the table. Let's evaluate your beliefs. Let's all evaluate my beliefs. Let's wrestle with this. Let's see which one makes the best sense in light of science. Which one makes the most sense in light of philosophy. Which one makes the most sense in light of history. The problem is this. If the person I happen to be talking to, for example, is a non-Christian, and we decide that my worldview is correct, all of a sudden now it has an implication upon them. What are they going to do about it? Does that mean I have to start going to church on Sunday? Does that mean I have to stop drinking? Does that mean I have to stop cheating on my wife? Does that mean I can't do this? Does that mean I can't... See, the questions, the moral code of it. By the way, a lot of Christians are afraid for the very same reason. We won't put our beliefs on the table. We won't be open to truth. Because, well, I really believe it's the truth, and I don't want to give that up. You see, truth has moral implications that immediately follow it. And the problem then is this. Most people don't want to address the moral issues of how I live my life. I don't want to start going... So they don't actually address the questions. You see, that question earlier was, has your college professor honestly evaluated all the evidence for the existence of God, or has he simply started with a framework that denies Christianity and adopted a worldview that conforms to his lifestyle? And when evidence comes along that doesn't conform to his worldview, he just dismisses it. And I would say, honestly speaking, most of the time, it's the latter. They haven't honestly evaluated the evidences because they don't want to deal with the consequences of perhaps this is indeed true. All right? R.C. Sproul says this. The biblical point is not that our problem ultimately is an intellectual one. It's a moral one. That's why we appeal for relativism. Because if there, if there is no objective truth, if there are no objective standards, then it's okay for me to live however I want to live, according to my preferences. But if there is a God, and He's normative, and He has a law, then he says no when I want to say yes and I have a conflict. If I could just get rid of objective truth, get rid of objective reality, then I can live however I want to live. All right. One of those great verses in Scripture, of course, is John 3.16. 
And many of you are familiar with it if you haven't already memorized it. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Unfortunately, as Christians, we often stop with those great verses right there and fail to keep on reading. Jesus says, God didn't send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is judged. He is not judged. He who does not believe in Him has been judged already, because he's not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Verse 19, And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Why did they reject Jesus? See, light is a synonym for truth, very commonly in the ancient world and even in the modern world. Jesus says, light, truth, has come into the world. I am the truth. I came into the world, but they rejected me. Why? Well, not because they evaluated all my statements on philosophical, historical, scientific, etc. basis, but because their deeds were evil. And my truth, my light, exposed their deeds of darkness. And they didn't want to deal with it. All right? Here's a wonderful picture of my uh, son. Some of you will recognize him. He's 13 years old now. Well, actually, he'll be 13 next week. All right? And we, when, when the kids had their birthdays, we would let them just like play in the cake. Okay? Here's your birthday cake. Uh, when Justin had his... I, I, you see, I like birthdays because it's an excuse to bake a cake. Uh, and then I get to eat it. So when just oldest son was, was six months old, our first one, we made a happy half-birthday cake. And we gave him a birthday cake, and he stuck his fingers in it, and he's like, oh, I'm dirty, and he screamed and cried, and that was the end of it. Sent him to bed, and I ate the cake. But Jared, I think this is about his third birthday, he loved the cake. And the frosting was awesome. And he's, that, so that's, that's frosting all over his face. It's, face. it's nothing else, right? So he's got frosting on his hands, and frosting all over his face, and he's, and he's just enjoying this. Well, Finally, my wife decided that, that that was enough and that he needed to be brought back to a proper condition. And she began to wash him. Look at my, so that's my wife washing his fingers. And he is not happy about this uh, at all. And I think that just illustrates the fact that sometimes we are not willing to abandon our life situation. We're not. We're not willing to really honestly, objectively evaluate this. Now, a little bit, let me speak briefly here. How do we as Christians, how do we overcome this problem? All right, well, first off, we begin overcoming this problem by doing it ourselves. By honestly saying, you know what, I want to know what the truth is in all aspects of my life. We need to get down on our knees and say, God, I accepted you as my Lord. And I know in accepting you as my Lord, that meant as a Savior of my sins. But now I understand accepting you as Lord means as Lord of all of my life. So here I am. What do I need to change? What do I need to correct? What, do I, what truth is it that in Scripture I need to understand and be willing to transform the way I live in all aspects of our lives? Because, you see, if we as Christians aren't willing to do this ourselves, in my opinion, we have no right to ask anybody else to do it. If we're sharing the gospel with anybody else, our family, our friends, our co-workers, people at school, wherever we may go, if we're not willing to put all the cards out on the table and say, here I am, God, you are Lord of my life, show me what truth is, and allow me and help me and assist me by your Spirit to change and transform my life in accordance with truth, then we have no right to ask anybody else to do that either.
I think secondly, by the way, the way that we can effectively communicate the gospel and help, help overcome some of those barriers is simply by being more genuine as Christians. If we are more genuine in our faith, in, our, in, in the way we live, we're more tra- you see, we're willing to admit a mistake when we're, when we're with somebody. And we make mistakes. We're real people. Sometimes as Christians we think, well, in order to be a witness, I've got to be perfect to my neighbor. All right? And then we hide our imperfections. Our neighbors see our imperfections. They know it. And they don't expect us to be perfect. You see, our worldview never says that after you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, you then become perfect. We don't become perfect until eternity. So let's be genuine. Let's be real. Let's also understand, I think a point would be this. Titus 3.5 is one of my favorite verses. It says, He saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. How did I become a Christian? How did you become a Christian? Why? Because of God's grace and God's mercy. Right? So beating them over the heads with argumentation, beating them upside, how stupid are you? Do you believe that? That's not going to work. Right? Instead, it's love, it's grace, it's truth. All right, it's genuineness as Christianity as well. But understanding now that the Christian worldview is indeed uh, all-encompassing. All right, anybody have any questions or comments here as we go? All right, let me move into our second part of our outline now. As we've asked the question, you know, what is a worldview and how does it affect my lives? I think we've got that down. Any questions on that? The question now is this. Is there any evidence for the existence of God specifically? All right, now mind you again, we're, we're limited on time, so... I'm going to kind of give a, this, this won't be as in-depth as I would love to do. I, what we'd like to do is to spend weeks discussing this question and all the, the implications of it as well. There are a number of arguments I think we can use to indeed establish the existence of the Christian God and the existence of God himself. I mean, think about it. Our worldview says God made the world. Our worldview says that God had a purpose for making the world. And they had a purpose from making mankind, and all of the animals as well. Right? We would therefore expect, just reasonable common sense, would tell us that we would expect God to tell us that he did that. Not only tell us that he did that, but to tell us who he is, to identify himself. And not only to identify himself, but to tell us why he did it. And even more importantly, perhaps, what does he want from us? What does he expect? We should expect God to not be silent, but indeed to have, a, to have evidences of, exist, of his existence um, all, all over creation. All right. Here's a wonderful little clip. Thanks, Janelle. You get the lights? Never fall. Why dry land is never satisfied by water. And why fire never says enough. enough. I wonder why can't I see the wind, but I can feel it? How the wind blows? Why the wind blows? Huh, huh. Did you ever 
wonder how an eagle floats through the sky. Where ideas come from. Where babies come where from. Where people go when they die. Where heaven is. Did you know that my fingerprint is the only one like it in the entire world? My tongue, too. <laughs> Did you ever wonder how a hummingbird can fly up to 60 miles per hour and come up to an abrupt stop? Wings buzzing at 70 beats per second. Crazy. Cool. Did you ever wonder why there are so many beautiful shades of skin? Why a lizard can grow a new tail? No way. No way. For you, in the time that it takes me to tell you this little known fact, 50,000 cells in your body will die down and be replaced with new ones. Did you ever wonder how a sneeze zooms out of your mouth at over 100 miles per hour? And how a mustard seed the size of a pinhead can grow into a very big tree? How a caterpillar can turn into a beautiful butterfly? If there's anything at the end of the galaxy, if there's anything outside of time, how it all starts, how it all stays, and where is it going? Did you ever wonder? Did you ever Sorry for that quality there. I didn't realize that it was doing that anymore. Psalm chapter 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, and night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens He has pitched a tent for the sun. According to the psalmist, God... Am I on? Yeah? All right. According to the psalmist, God has made himself known. And one of the ways in which he has made himself known is the heavens declare the glories of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Look around us, says the psalmist. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood, excuse me, through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Someone says, I don't know if God exists. I wonder if God exists. I think a simple question, now we've got to follow this up with more, but a simple question is, or a simple statement to them is, just look around. Just look around. Begin to examine for yourself whether or not the heavens indeed display evidences of the handiwork of God. Just look around us. Now, when we look around, admittedly, we see things that don't seem to fit with the existence of God. Evil and suffering, most, no- most notably. I mean, well, well, why would he allow that? Okay, first questions first. Does God exist? If he doesn't exist, there's no need to ask about the evil and suffering part. It's not his fault. He's not around. But does he exist? Is there evidence of the existence of God? And so I think we can look a number of different ways. We can look at the evidence for the universe, the evidence for life, the evidence for the cell, the complexity, etc. The argument is simple. It's called an argument from design. It was made famous by a man named William Paley. You may have heard. William Paley, by no means, was the, fa- the father of this particular argument, but in the modern world... He certainly is the father of it. And he came up with a simple illustration. He said, look, suppose, look at a watch. It's got a complex arrangement of parts that clearly serve a function. 
a purpose. It's got complexity. It's got design. It's got purpose to it. He said, I suppose that even if a watch were, were laid down in some tribal world, in some tribal culture who had never seen technology of any kind, and the people had never seen a watch before, and all of a sudden one of these tribal persons comes upon this watch, and they pick it up and they look at it, and they begin wondering what it is. Well, they're not going to know what it is. But they're going to immediately know that someone made it. They're going to realize this is not some random thing of nature that suddenly blossomed right here. That it was designed by a designer. And the idea is simple. That as we look at things that have a complex arrangement of parts, especially when those uh, arrangement of parts serve a purpose, we begin immediately to realize that there's a designer behind it. Some intelligent source. Now, the argument is very simple. The more complexity the more purpose, the more intent, the more design, the more likely it is that there's a designer. Right? The less complex, the more possible it is. Do you see our modern world tells us, right, that all these things in the universe came about as a result of Big Bang, well, not just the Big Bang, but random chance. Random chance. It's randomness. Alright? So if we have something that has a, a small level of complexity, Randomness and chance can indeed do it. You know, you throw five dice down and eventually you get Yahtzee huh, on the first roll. Cool, right? You guys know what Yahtzee is? Yeah, right, yeah. Uh, you get Yahtzee on the first roll. Doesn't happen very often. You're not going to go, wow, God must have manipulated the dice so I can win the game. No, it's chance. Right? But as soon as you add ten dice, well, it's possible. Thousand dice, all sixes on the first roll. Probably not going to happen. A million dice, not going to happen. A billion, you see, the more you add complexity to this problem, the, the more unreasonable chance is as an explanation. In fact, it reaches a point where chance is absurd. See, I mean, you get a billion dice, all six in the first roll, and the answer is, I don't believe it. That's your first response. I don't believe it. And if somebody says, no, no, it really happened, then the answer is, okay, somebody the system. You've got dice that have all sixes on all sides. You know, I mean, there's something going on. You know immediately that there must be some intelligent source behind it as well. So that's basically the argument. All right? And I think that's on your notes there as well. If God made the world and life in it, then we would expect to see design and complexity and purpose. Those would be the features of the universe that we, be, that we expect to see. And, and the more design, the more complexity, and the more purpose that's present the stronger the argument becomes. And I would actually argue that it, that it reached a point where it's absurd to actually deny it. This argument is so powerful, it's actually absurd to deny it. See, the weakness of the design argument is that it's a probability. It's based on probability. You know, what's the probability of getting 10 dice, all sixes? So somebody can say, well, the improbable just happened. But the problem becomes for them is, that the level of complexity that we're going to see in the universe, whether it's in life or in the universe itself, is actually so absurdly complex, it's, hot, it's absolutely, totally irrational to say, well, the, uh, the improbable happened. It's no longer improbable, it's now impossible. The level of complexity that we're going to see in the universe 
is that it's impossible that it could have happened by chance processes. There must be a designer behind it. All right, here's an illustration. Suppose you're walking along the beach and you saw this cliff with uh, clear signs of erosion. The wind and the waves have clearly beat up against this wall. And amazingly, it's carved this sign that says Denver, 10 miles, with an arrow. Now, I don't know that any one of us in here would conclude, wow, look at what the wind and the waves did. We realize the wind and the waves, you know, maybe it can make an E somewhere. It wouldn't be a real good E, but it might be it could make an E somewhere. But there's no way that it's going to not only have the level of complexity we see in each one of the letters, but it's got a lot more than that. It's clearly designed. Now, if anyone, by the way, did believe that this sign was carved by the wind and the waves and by erosion, and you also believed that Denver was actually 10 miles away, you'd be foolish. All right? So this sign has all the features of what we can clearly identify as intelligence. All right? Design, complexity, and purpose. Somebody did it on purpose, whether it was to deceive people or just for fun. There's some purpose there. But it also has information on it. All right? Information. Now let's suppose we carve this rock out of the wall here, all right, and we get a giant boulder that now has Denver 10 miles. And we take that giant boulder and we place it 10 miles outside of Denver with an arrow pointing in the proper direction. Now we would realize somebody did that intentionally. Look at that rock, it just morphed right there. All, you know. No, we realize somebody intentionally carved it. Somebody intentionally placed it right there and it has information, and it also has one other item now. It would have truth. It would have true information. All, right? All of these things are things that we realize can only come about by an intelligent being. All right? You see, information needs a mind. You must have a mind to get information. Okay? So you can throw Scrabble letters out on the table. And you might get, you're going to get some complex formation of letters. But if those letters spell something out, it has information on them. Now, is it possible that throwing Scrabble letters out on the table, you could get some generic piece of simple information? Sure, possible. The problem is, is information needs another mind to read the information that's on the table. Or it's meaningless, right? If there's no minds, no intelligent beings in the, in the universe at all, a bunch of Scrabble letters on the table, even spelling out whatever, would have information that's not usable or discernible by anybody else. So the point becomes this. You see, if we find design, complexity, and purpose, it absolutely testifies that there's some kind of creator behind this. But as soon as you see information in the cosmos... All right, and where's the, where's the best source of information that I'm speaking about in the, in the created realm? DNA. DNA has information in it. An extremely complex, encoded information. Every single thing you or I ever will be, genetically speaking, is encoded in a single strand of DNA. Information. What does information tell you? There's a mind that put the information there. But guess what? Um, information needs another mind to interpret the, and translate that information. Our very lives testify that there's some divine intelligence behind the cosmos.
as well. But then, of course, now we go to another level, in the level of truth. Truth begins now to speak to philosophical issues as well as moral issues. Is there truth in the universe, uh, in the creation or in the cosmos um, as well? Does that make sense? All right. There's a famous story about a group of scientists who had decided, you know, that with modern evolutionary science and, and, and the ability of great research and, and all the abilities that they had in the labs, that they could just do about anything they wanted. So one day, they go up to God, and they say, God, you know, you've been great all these years, you know, you kind of come in handy, really, you know, really, honestly, seriously, you know, you've been very, very handy, but we just don't need you anymore. I mean, because anything you can do, we can do. And God says, and goes, well, um, how about we have a little duel? Okay, sure. Uh, you know, God, you name the duel. Whatever you do, we'll do. So God says, okay, great. Let's make man. All right, here's... And so God takes some clay and he picks it up and, and he fashions it into a man and a, and a woman and he breathes into it and boom, it becomes a living soul. So the scientists say, well, that was pretty good. We can do that too. And they began gathering up some dirt and God says, wait a second, stop, stop, stop. Get your own dirt. <laughs> You see, what science can do is it assumes something that pre-exists from which they get all the rest of their information. The question becomes, where did that first thing come from? The argument from an, from an atheistic worldview is the Big Bang and the cosmos just happened. And the answer is, according to science, nothing just happens. Nothing just happens. Mike. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let, me, let me go back a step and then let me address your question. Okay, so we got an atheistic worldview, right? The first question is, where did everything come from? Well, it just happened. Problem. First law of thermodynamics. Nothing just happens. Right? It's a law of science. Nothing just happens. You had to have had something or someone outside the universe start this process. Then what they argue is, is that once you get that first thing, let's say now you get a cell or something like that evolves from random chance processes. The problem with that happening is, even the simplest cell is far too complex to have happened by chance. Then from there, it begins to unfold from an evolutionary process. All right? The problem, of course, becomes also there's information in that process. Where did the information come from? Random chance processes without an intelligent source can't insert chance into this process. All right, so the scientists realizing that, that and, I, and I don't mean scientists as a general term, because we have some in our room here, Right? I mean, scientists, especially the, an atheistic, naturalistic, scientific, science scientific, hey, good word, um, scientific perspective. They're going to argue that, well, all right, I, I, granted, we can't get that first, even the simplest cell by random chance processes that had to have had an intelligent source. So what they do is they take the question of where that source come from and they move it to somewhere else in the universe. An alien brought it here. And what's the question? Where'd the alien come from? Okay. Anything that's inside the universe has a beginning. That's the nature of the universe, right? Everything inside the universe has a beginning. The question is, who or what began that? So we're asking the question, who or what began life? And the answer is, an alien. Great. Next question, who or what began the alien's life? Another alien. You haven't answered the question. Does that make sense? You're offering, an, it's what we call in, in, in philosophy, it's an apparent answer. 
you appear to have answered the question, oh, now I know how life on Earth got here. But you really haven't answered the fundamental question, you've just moved it. So it appears that you've answered the question, but now your answer has raised another question. Who or what caused that? And what we'll find is, this will be a long line of questions, an endless chain, with never an a, an, a, a sufficient answer uh, in any ways, shape, or form. All right, let's move forward here. Michael Denton wrote a book referencing the, the, the uh, cell, and he says, a cell appears to represent the very epitome of perfection. Now, who's Michael Denton? Michael Denton is a world-class molecular biologist. In the late 1980s, molecular biology is studying biology at the level of the molecules. In the late 1980s, I think it was 88 or 89, he published a book titled Evolution, A Theory in Crisis. Michael Denton is not a Christian, has not become a Christian. All right, to my knowledge, still, 20 years later, has not become a Christian. He wrote this book because he said, look, what we know of from studying life at the molecular level, what we now know, this is 20 years ago, is what we now know is that it's way too complex. It is so infinitely complex, it's beyond our imagination. We can't grapple with what we know of. And he says, and what we know of right now is nothing compared to what we're going to know of in 10, 20, and 50 years. He said, but I know this. What we know of right now is that it's so complex that I know one thing. Evolution is not the explanation. Right? At the end of his book, last chapter of his book, he said, what is the explanation? I don't know. He says, I don't know. He says, but evolution will go down as but the great 20th century cosmogenic myth. Cosmogenic means the origin of the cosmos. It will go down as the great myth of the 20th century. And he said, he actually, there's a rip on the church. He said, just like the creation myths it replaced. He's not a Christian. He's not a creationist. His answer is, I don't know what the answer is. This man was hit hard by the scientific community. Within about 10 years, he said, look, I'm not doing any more interviews. If you want to know what I had to say, read my book. But he goes on to describe the level of complexity of the human cell. And let's take a quick look at this. This is a great little clip. With computer animation, we can enter the cell to view this remarkable system at work. After entering the heart of the cell, we see the tightly wound strands of DNA, storehouses for the instructions necessary to build every protein in an organism. In a process known as transcription, a molecular machine first unwinds a section of the DNA helix to expose the genetic instructions needed to assemble a specific protein molecule. Another machine then copies these instructions to form a molecule known as messenger RNA. When transcription is complete, the slender RNA strand carries the genetic information through the nuclear pore complex, the gatekeeper for traffic in and out of the cell nucleus. 
The messenger RNA strand is directed to a two-part molecular factory called a ribosome. After attaching itself securely, the process of translation begins. Inside the ribosome, a molecular assembly line builds a specifically sequenced chain of amino acids. These amino acids are transported from other parts of the cell and then linked into chains often hundreds of units long. Their sequential arrangement determines the type of protein manufactured. When the chain is finished, it is moved from the ribosome to a barrel-shaped machine that helps fold it into the precise shape critical to its function. After the chain is folded into a protein, it is then released and shepherded by another molecular machine to the exact location where it is needed. This is absolutely mind-boggling to perceive at this scale of size such a uh, finely tuned um, apparatus, a device that's, uh, that bears the marks of intelligent design and manufacture. And we have the details of an immensely complex molecular realm of genetic information processing. And it's exactly this new realm of molecular genetics where we see the most compelling evidence of design on the Earth. Michael Denton says it this way, and this is 20 years ago in Michael Denton's book. He says, what we would be witnessing would be an object resembling an immense automated factory, looking at a cell, a factory larger than a city and carrying out almost as many unique functions as all the manufacturing activities of man on earth. However, it would be a factory which would have one capacity not equal to any of our own advanced machines, but would be capable of replicating its entire structure Within a, more, within a matter of a few hours. To gain a more objective grasp of the level of complexity the cell represents, consider the problem of constructing an atomic model. Altogether, a typical cell contains about 10 million million atoms. Suppose that we chose to build an exact replica to the scale of one million times that of the cell so that each atom of the model will be the size of a tennis ball. Constructing such a model at the rate of one atom per minute, it would take 50 million years to finish. It's amazing, the evidences for the existence of God. Now, bear in mind, at this point in time, what we seem to have in play, and we're going to look more next week now into more detail, for the uh, uh, evidences into the universe and the complexity of the universe itself as well. And we'll finish off a little bit with this particular idea uh, also. Now, have we proven the existence of the Christian God? Well, no. What we've begun to see is the fact that the heavens declare the glories of God and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. If you don't believe in the ex existence of God, the answer is just look around. 
look at our very selves and the nature, even the simplest aspect of human life or of any form of life, it gets mo more complex, by the way. This is just the beginning point. The human brain is a billion times more complex than a cell. We begin realizing, wow, this is fascinating. Now, this doesn't prove that Christianity is true. It seems to establish that we're on the way, indeed, for suggestion that there's at least one God out there. Maybe there are others. So we need to go the next step, looking at the evidence for the existence of the Christian God in particular, and that there's only one God uh, himself uh, uh, as well. Now let me uh, close by reminding you this, that as Christians, our evangelism needs to... Uh, let's, let me put it this way. There are two reasons why I believe it's so important for us as Christians to, to look at things like this, to ask ourselves these questions. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Why do I believe what I believe? Is it simply because my parents raised me this way? Is it simply because, well, that's what my family does? Is it simply because that's what my peers do? Is it simply because it makes me feel good? Well, if all those are the case, then I wonder how we could cite Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And the two reasons why I believe this is so valuable information is, number one, we begin to look at this, and I believe it helps strengthen our own faith. We begin going, you know what? Maybe this is the religion of my parents, but it, it seems to be true. It's not just something that's good for me, it's truth. God has indeed revealed himself through Christianity and through the Bible and through Jesus Christ. And it's evidence amongst and it's evidence by looking at the heavens. Right? A second reason why I believe this is a valuable information is now we can begin to dialogue with reason, with 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 truth, with information. Those whom we love that don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, they've got questions. They're honest questions. They're legitimate questions. They honestly say, I don't know how you can believe in that. I don't know how I could ever believe in that. You know, all religions are saying the same thing. They all appear to be true, whatever it is. Modern science has proven that we don't need God. And we, we can begin to say, hey, wait a second, no, uh, that's not true. Have you looked at this? Modern science can't explain this. Not all religions can explain this. So it helps us in our evangelistic efforts. But I would also encourage us that our evangelistic efforts should be with gentleness and respect. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.